Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. I'm Harvey Asher, sexaholic. Hi, Harvey. Uh, I'm going to tell you, just got a little anxiety of all this crazy stuff. And what's it about? Well, this program's bottom line has never been enough for me. I've had to fine-tune my bottom line. And it includes sex and marriage at a certain boundary. It also includes that if I ever purposely go into a locker room, shower room, I've lost my sobriety. Well, I've been using the first booth, and I realized the third booth was a shower. And I got all shut up. That's that. I have not lost my sobriety. My intent was not to go into a If I had seen it, I would have hopefully gone in the back of the building if I had seen it. But that's how my mind goes into the rigidity of forgetting the intention of what it is anyway. Uh, we have a term for it from the big book. It's called the crucible of our experience. And so about 15 years ago, maybe, or yeah, I guess, I forget, you know, 34 and a half years is a long time, things all together. But we were asked to speak in Ireland. And in convent, and I went to the bathroom, and they had a shower there, just real. And that was the first time I had to deal with that kind of concept. That my intent, because what's underneath my disease? The doctor's opinion tells us. Says it's two components. One is a physical allergy. The other is an obsession of the mind. Fantasies and certain rigidities have been going over and over in our head is the obsession of the mind. We minimize that part of the doctor's opinion. And many people in this program, if it's not lust, it's another obsession. I'm having a sponsee uh, in another country now uh, do his step work on the obsession of the mind. All the obsessions. It's like a Rolodex. We tend to have not indefinite obsessions, infinite obsessions, but we have many, many obsessions. And they repeat. The same principle goes on. Casting it out. 
into the group. Now, it came up the other day about the 18-wheeler and all that good stuff. I can't use some of it. I use the word casting it out to you. The, the one where it says you cast it out to God doesn't work for me. The ones that work for me is God, whatever it is I'm looking for, in her breast, may I find in you. God, whatever I'm looking for in his crotch, may I find in you. That 18-wheeler is a wonderful toolbox. But some tools are comfortable for me. Some are. And you find the tools you want it that work for you. I was sharing with someone before at Nashville, for years we had a bag of rubber bands on our um, a clubhouse. And we handed out the rubber bands and we would ask, you know, we want you to wear one unless you're a masochist and you like pain. <laughs> but every time that first thought comes in, flip the rubber band. The brain does not like that sensation. And all this God talk we talk about. God do this. God take that. Man, we need a bigger toolbox than just God. Because God is in everything. So one of the tools we use is God also. A manifestation. It's so difficult for us with all our programs to picture, not that it is, but to picture this, this analogy that God is the ocean and I am a wave. We have a problem in Western civilization to duality. God is separate from us. We're always using terms. I'm going to find God. Our Father who art in heaven. We're inundated with he's everywhere but me, in me, in you, I am a wave of the ocean. And you are a wave of the ocean. Your crest might look different than my crest. It might be a different size way. But if I look down, we're all connected to this ocean. We talk about its oneness. Oneness. There is nothing else. Now, am I talking religion? <laughs> Hopefully some of it, it is in for our religion's sake. <laughs> but we're talking a God is everything or he's nothing. What does everything mean? There can't be duality very successfully. Tough concepts. We had to let go of our old ideas. Doesn't say we had to let go of our old religion. Our old ideas because when you go into your religion, you will see these ideas. But our cultures, even within the country, within our religion, teaches us the culture of that particular person's opinion. <coughs> Tough stuff. Scary stuff. Scary to know that the that part of my breath and oxygen 
and air is argon, and that argon never gets changed. It remains its argon. So what a dinosaur breathed out, I'm breathing in. And what some person in India is breathing out, I'm breathing in. That we are totally all one. And we get a glimpse of that in this program. We get a glimpse. We have a word for it. Anonymity. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of our fellowship. It takes anonymity and spiritual. What does it mean? You shouldn't give your name? That's not what anonymity is. Anonymity is that we have no men, we have no women, we have no Christians, we have no Jews, we have no blacks, we have no whites, we have no rich, we have no poor. We just have drugs. <laughs> We're one. We're a bunch of drunks, a bunch of bozos on the bus. <laughs> My sponsor early on had me buy a clown. It's about this big. I've had it for over 30 years. Faces me in my meditation room, used to face me. In my bedroom, first thing I get up, see it. And he'd say, Pardon, what do you do when you go to a circus and you see the crazy antics of a clown? I'd say, You laugh. He said, Well, you got to start laughing at your crazy antics. We're just bozos on the bus. So you look at me, too. Oh, Harvey, 34 years of this and that. He's an old man. How can you? You have no idea what a bozo I am. <laughs> My uh, story is that I was born in Adage. I want to blame it on being sexually abused. No, I was an addict before. I was playing with myself by the time I was four or five. I get so irritated. You'd think you could get screwed up with things. My mother would take calamine lotion and put it around my testicle area bit so we'd get irritated. I mean, with cotex packs. You talk about confusion. To help the irritation. And then she'd stand me in the hallway shaming. But I was a sex addict before then. I think it's a riot. (laughs) (laughs) I was having a plain doctor touching this little gal and she'd be... I know the exact year we were in New Hampshire. Miss My mother had... Bad allergies. We lived in New York City area. We went to New Hampshire. And it was when the Second World War was over. I remember the summer. I was born in 1939. So it's about 1944. And this little girl and I would touch each other in a, in a hollowed out bush. To this day, when I smell ferns, I remember that moment like it happened yesterday. That's another area we don't talk about. That time does not exist. Time and space, time is not real. It's a man-made Equivalent. We're taught so many things about reality that are not true. You know that when I speak to Iran, 
that their time zone is on the half hour. So the country before it might be 10 o'clock. They're 10.30. How could that be? With time. <laughs> they took it to Australia about five years ago. And it was my wife's birthday. But we crossed the international time zone. She lost her birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and we tried to figure God out. <laughs> God who has no time, no space, is infinite. Isn't it strange that we think God is finite? that we could know him, understand him, figure it out. And we think we're infinite. We're never going to die. We live an infinite life. We're never going to die. None of us. I'm 79. I don't believe I'm going to die. It doesn't matter how many steps I have. I'm never going to die. We live in these delusions which are in our mind. My sponsor would say, Harvey, whatever you're thinking, you're behind enemy lines. He was a big AA circuit speaker. He's been dead almost 30 years now, but big circuit speaker. And we follow him. His wife sponsored my wife in Avalon. Matter of fact, I have a picture of my sponsor standing behind Lois and Nancy's sponsor, his wife, standing behind Bill W. I have a picture, I'll show you. This stuff is not that far away, but but we think these things in our head are real. You actually believe pornography is real. It's digital bumps. Data. Theatrical productions, most of them are produced. You think men can last as long as they have it? In those show, movies, one of our sponsees was getting married, and he was all shook up and about his wedding night. And uh, a group of us were talking to him on the phone the day he was married, and we said, "Don't worry if it if you last two and a half minutes." That's and the other guy said, no, if you last 60 seconds, that's all. <laughs> this is all made up stuff. Pornography is not real. And then you trans, it's been imprinted in our brain. And then we expect wives or whatever to be like what we've seen. And then our everyday movies, the sweet relationships people have. Everyone's in bed. No one ever has bad breath. (laughs) They wake up in the morning face to face. No one has bad breath. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the type of delusional system. Why is this? These terms, why are these terms so important? Because of our first step. It says not only that we're powerless, but our lives become unmanageable. Well, Bill was being kind. The word was insane. There's a second step says we're restored to sanity. Doesn't say restored to manageability. (laughs) We're insane. A woman smiles at me, and I get an 
auditory hallucination when she says, hi, I hear her say, let's have sex this moment. (laughs) (laughs) She's 20, I'm 79. (laughs) That's called a delusion. (laughs) Double header. An auditory hallucination and a delusion all in one. We don't accept that we're insane. I see a woman dressed and I see her naked. That's called a visual hallucination. I see a man down walking down the street. He's dressed. I see him with an erection. He doesn't have an erection. That's what my mind does. Delusional thinking, visual and auditory hallucinations. You guys and gals, you pretty up into all these religious terms and morality, but you don't want to face what the words really say. Says we're nuts. (laughs) We're not like other people. So just my Essay sponsor for years, almost 12 years, but he fired me because we didn't know him. And I knew that he wanted to put his son in a little business I was in, and then he wants to be in it. Don't go into business with his son. But in the crucible of our experience, and by the way, that's all I have to give to you. My experience, strength, and hope. Everything of stories. The minute we're not telling stories, we're lecturing. So, so Jess had many great things he'd say. Um, he, he would talk about that these two men were walking down the street. One was a sex addict, two weren't. And this gorgeous woman started walking towards him. And the two guys who were not sex addicts said, man, she's gorgeous, but I love to go to bed with her. I Imagine this, and they're going on and on about sex things. And two streets later, she passes them. The two non-sex addicts don't even know that woman exists. And the sex addict will replay that moment for the rest of his life. We are not normal men. We have a defect, probably, as more and more studies are showing up, in our hypothalamus, in our limbic system, where we just don't produce enough dopamine, which gives us a sense of well-being. So Bill W. and Dr. Bob, before any of the theories, would know about the hypothalamus and the limbic system, the fight or flight, the survival brain, we call it. Before it was known, they were talking about This chapter five deals (coughs) with not booze. How it works, the main chapter in the A book, it deals with what? The steps, first of five paragraphs, the pre-steps, then the steps. And then it starts on fear, at resentment, and sex. All three of those are in the survivor brain. 
In my work, I deal with people who have severe, severe PTSD. What happens in PTSD? Post-traumatic stress. What happens? That normal survivor brain that keeps soldiers safe when they're in combat doesn't shut off when they're not in combat. Well, that part of our brain is on all the time, even if we don't go to combat. We are restless, irritable, and discontented. That is the true nature of our illness. Our serotonin, our limbic system, it just ain't pumping right. And you can pretty this up all you want, disagree with this all you want, I might be 100% wrong. There's no one knows the truth. But it works for me, people. Even if it's wrong. I was so glad to know I wasn't a scumbag. That I was sick. I was so relieved. It's by the time my mother had an argument with this um, neighbor and she moved us to New Jersey from New York City. And she moved us to a very Slavic area. People from Slavic countries and they hated Jews Poles Russians and so they would call me a Christ killer I was real powerful I killed someone 2,000 years before. <laughs> Man, you talk about getting power. <laughs> and so this group of Italian guys said, we'll protect you. Yes, I was being bullied. But to be protected, I had to pay the money to watch the masturbate. I was about 11 and a half. Started masturbating. So in my mind, to be protected, to be cared about, to be taken care of by a friend, you had to have sex with them. Just is. Could never imagine how could you have a male friendship without sex. In the meantime, I was Loving it with gas. I'm not kidding. I am an equal opportunity employee. <laughs> Although I must say, gay sex is my heroine. I was a sexually, I abused my wife through frequency. Unbelievable. Must have had intercourse with her close to 8,000 times by the time we came into the program. By the way, I'm going to use numbers because if you have not done this on your first step, that unmanageability, unmanageability, unmanageability is a business term. And it has numbers. How many times <clears throat> must have masturbated by the time I came into the program at age 44? About seven, <clears throat> 8,000 times. Men masturbate. They tend to outgrow it and only utilize it at certain times. Not me. Didn't matter how much I was doing it to my life. I still needed to masturbate. I needed masturbation to get get me going in the morning as a stimulant, throughout the day as a tranquilizer, and at night 
as a sleeping pill. If you don't think this is a drug, man, keep thinking it's a morality issue. Go for it. And if you don't think as a drug, you build tolerance and you need a higher dose, then you haven't read the essay book. Because he has a whole section on tolerance and withdrawal. But you're not going to read that part. Yes, it's not religious. You're going to read the parts that have a lot of religiosity. <clears throat> By the time I came into the program, I probably had 500 sex partners, predominantly men. Gave my wife venereal diseases a couple of times. I only used safe sex, except when I didn't use safe sex. My delusional thinking of who was safe and who wasn't. <coughs> my sponsor once said, Harvey, if this program works for you, it could work for a dog. <laughs> they talk about it in Nashville that for people who get suicidal, as they have such overwhelming shame, and they say, before you kill yourself, be sure you go to a meeting where Harvey's at. <laughs> be sure you say what you're what you're in shame over. And he'll tell you how he's done it at least three times. <laughs> and you'll walk out of there feeling wonderful. <laughs> this our disease wants us to think we're the worst. We're the slime of the slime. Ego. We're the best of the worst. <laughs> Shame is a pure ego issue. I am so bad. Ego, like saying I'm the greatest. Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest. It's always mirrored by I'm the worst. By the way, there is nothing that are opposite. Everything is one. Because God is one. You cannot possibly know what happiness is if you hadn't had pain. There's no way you wouldn't know the concept of happiness. You would never know what joy is if you didn't have sadness. So these are not opposites. These are one entity. And, you know, <coughs> I've had two years this past two years that I didn't think could ever be possible. I'm learning things that I never knew I could learn. Reading things that were taboo for me to read. Like reading things from Hinduism and Buddhism and then finding them in my own religion. But they were filtered out for me in my own religion even though it was there. All religion have truths. The problem is we're blinded to those truths. We get used to only certain truths. And we've been listening with filtered ears. So many of our clergymen 
we're talking about love and God's love. We happen to pick out only the times they talked about punishment. We filtered everything. Heavy stuff, isn't it, man? This is an interesting program as I work with people, so many religions. What usually happens ultimately when you stay sober and you really get into it, and you get into your 11th, 12th step, you end up in the religion of your birth. It becomes much more meaningful to you. It doesn't change that. It enriches it. Just like it said, we had to let go of our old ideas. It doesn't say our old religion. By the way, we have to do this about our own program. Don't ever think this is the only answer. Then you're treating this program just like a religion. This is the only answer for me. But it doesn't work for a lot of people. It's not their cup of tea. Other things might work for them. Other fellowships. The minute we, it's like languages. Every language seems to have words another language doesn't have. I know that because I have sponsees from all over the world, and man, I'll use some words and they just don't know because we have nuanced words. Like we have no word for in-laws other than the word my in-law. Meaning the family of my wife. We have a mother-in-law, father-in-law. Other languages have all kinds of names for each one of these situations. So each language has beauty that the other language might not have. But that language, the other language has things the other language doesn't. And it's beautiful. But when we say there's only one true language, then we're in trouble. And we could tend to do this about our program. No, this is the program that works for me. No sex with self. No sex outside of heterosexual marriage. It works for me. Other people, doesn't work for them. They sometimes need other programs. One in particular, by the way, is our program ignores love addictions. We hardly talk about them here. Roy talks about them in the book. We tend not to do it. People are going to have a tough time in this program if their disease predominantly shows up as love addiction. They can benefit from other things from our program. So again, having this mind is called a spacious mind. A spacious mind. And so... By the time I was uh, 15, 14 and a half, 15, I had an uncle who's a bachelor, and he decided to be a man. You had to go to a prostitute by the time you were 14 or 15. So he sent me and my cousin, who was six weeks younger than me, to a prostitute, and it didn't work for me. Either it was a premature ejaculation or something happened. But 
I'd never did. And I went home that day, sat in my soup of my house, contemplating killings. And then I had a click and said, no way. And so I spent my entire high school years overdoing it with the gals up there. I used to be much more explicit. But the past few years, yeah, it's changed. And we want to be explicit, but then again, we've got to realize times are changing and being misunderstood. It's what was happening back then culturally would not be acceptable now in many areas. My mother stabbed me when I was about 15 with a bread knife. Nowadays, she would have been put into jail. Things change because they always change. There is nothing new under the sun. It is always changing. One second from now is different than what just happened. The previous second. All we have is an event of the moment. And so, met my wife in college. She was 17. I was 19. Um, we got married at a young age. And um, she was 19. I was 21. Uh, she helped put me through school, uh, graduate school. Um, and I just was... Looking back at it, it was impossible. She got honeymoon cystitis because of the frequency. She knew nothing else. In her talks, she says how she seen come home in the daytime, and if my car was there, she'd not come in the house. Wouldn't matter if she was all dressed and was going to a banquet or something and she looked so good I had to have sex then and then. <clears throat> this went on for years. We had four children in five and a half years. Two of them were on birth control. But though that birth control was not based on the type of frequency I was having with her. They probably based it on normal frequency. And she worked and put me to graduate school. I was 29. By the time I got out of all my schooling, got into my profession. And a couple of years out of my profession, I mean, after I finished it all, I was in private practice. I had a half a day off. I had stopped drinking basically in college because it was interfering with my brain, needing stimulants to get over the hangovers and whatever. And um, had half a day off. Started doing a little drinking on a Wednesday afternoon. Joined the Y. Got introduced to homosexual sex at the Y. Took to it like a duck to water. Why? You name it. My disease always needs expansion. I needed this program if I never had sex with someone else outside my marriage. I was an obsessive compulsive masturbator. And that progressed. I needed to put things inside me while masturbating. 
It always needs a higher dose. People will not accept this concept that you always need a higher dose of shooting up because you get tolerance and you get withdrawal. Looking back at it, I could not go more than a few hours without an orgasm. Looking back at it, I was having withdrawal. And you want to keep your morality model? Go for it if it's working for you. It's a great system if it works for you. It did not work for me. It made me act out more. And I became more and more religious. And we got to act out more and more in more and more bizarre ways. And I live in sexual I was probably not sober in my mind for about eight, ten years. Raised my kids. They were teenagers by the time I finally got into the program. They'd come home with stories about me. My wife would hear things about me in our house of worship. Couldn't couldn't get sober for them. I tried. I'd make oaths. Couldn't get sober for God. I got into AA. But I couldn't stop acting that way. I said I'd never act out with someone in AA. I ended up acting out with someone in AA. And one day, if someone said something in beautiful terms that in my life changed my life, he said, maybe I have to go for it. I went job downtown. Don't forget this was before internet. <coughs> this is before we had internet. So I jogged down from the AA clubhouse to our lower broad section, Broadway, and go to some pornography stuff. And one day I was there and some young grubby kid kissed me in the mouth. Some guy. And I wasn't into kissing men. And I walked out of there and I was disgusted. And all of a sudden I said, I can't stand this one more moment. I'm going to go forth. I'm going to leave my wife. I'm going to leave my profession. But I leave my religious beliefs, and this is all I'm going to do. This I cannot bear this double life for one more And I got relief like I'll never forget. And I jogged back to the clubhouse where my car was parked. And I jumped into this guy who six weeks before, 1984, had started SA in Nashville. And I jumped into him. And out of my mouth came the words, I'm ready. <laughs> to this day, I don't understand. Out of my mouth came those words. And I've been sober since that day. One day, and I'm lust-free today. Go have crazy first thoughts all the time. Not all the time, occasionally. I noticed the other day I was in a Zumba class. <laughs> I noticed some gal with some motion and had a picture in my head. Sex with her for a million seconds. A million seconds. And I said, thank you, God, for reminding me. I'm still sick, and I looked at the clock, and I realized it was 
11 o'clock. I had not had a thought since the time I woke up. Like from five or six till we left five hours without even one first thought. Man, miracles won't happen. Because the moment I get a first thought, I thank God for reminding me I'm sick. And I use one of the tools. Many, many tools. Requires a very large toolbox. But then again, I have a very large medication box. I have high blood pressure pills, I have cholesterol medicine, you name it, I'm taking it at 79. I am still sexually active with my wife. I have a certain frequency. We'll maybe talk about it in our session together, how that came about. I need the blue pill. My wife calls it, you could take your vitamin V today. But I don't give a darn if it works, it works. <laughs> the wonders of chemistry. These are God given events. Have you ever realized that the only time? We're so created in his image. It's during that moment of orgasm when we could create life also. What a sacred moment that is. We come truly to be able to create. Wow. I recoil from it like a hot flame. Um, I review the movies before I get to see them. Uh, my goal with my wife is to always remind her how sick I am, not how well I am. If she thinks I'm well, it, it's just too painful because I have to ignore her so much. I'm on the phone a lot. I need a lot of medication. The TV shows up, and all of a sudden I have to jump up and leave the room and say, I, I, I'm not going to watch this series anymore. This concept that so weighs down people in this program who are married, their need to convince their wife they're well. I could not get sober for them. I had to get sober for me that I could not stand the stink one more minute. I compare it to if my wife I'm jogging on a hot day and I come in and my wife says, Harvey, you need a shower. I get annoyed at her. Is she implying I smell? How dare she? But if I'm jogging and I smell my own stick, I can't wait to go in and take a shower. Not my own badness, my own stink. And I do it for one day at a time, never forever. How are we doing for time? Yes, what's that? They did ask me uh, if you're in five minutes or less at 11.40. Okay. (laughs) 
River, I'm making amends and ask your forgiveness. I said I'd leave more time, and I just channel so the time got away from me. The next ten minutes, are there some questions? Yeah, talk about um, a struggle for people in essay for love addiction. I want to share some more about that. Um, why, why is it hard? What, what do you do? A lot of things are hard in essay. I go to have three, four meetings a week. It's my program. I love it. But there are a lot of things in essay. We tend, as a younger group, to not do much about anything except the first two steps, three steps. As a fellowship, we don't get much beyond the first three steps. Many people are chronically relaxing, coming in. We're talking about those first three steps. So, So when there are other issues... And the big book and the essay book, Roy will talk about three things, sometimes in a row. He'll join them together. He'll say lust, sexually acting out, and dependency. He usually just says lust and sexually acting out. But he, he differentiates. But it just hardly gets spoken about. It gets spoken about the sex with the person or this or that, but the obsession of the mind does not get dealt with, nor does the obsession of the mind about many things. We tend to get into a pattern of either talking powerlessness or give it to God. God will take it. No, the book does not say God will do it. It says God will do what we can't do for ourselves. And I'm going to tell you this is a a kind of deep concept, but I'm going to keep it in general terms. It's called the bread of shame. What is a bread of shame? A kid is playing a softball game. And in junior high, and he's hitting every ball. He's getting home runs all the time. And after the crowd's cheering, and after the game, everyone's cheering, and the crowd picks him up and carries him around and complimenting him. A few days later, he finds out that his father paid the pitcher to throw perfect pitches and paid the crowd to cheer him. And he went into depression. If God does everything for us, We go around feeling real bad. And that's what we call free will. So, it, this program is very simple, but it's tough as hell. It's hard. Simple, but hard. I've had to work my ass off. And don't tell me ever for me to say, oh, it's God's grace. It means he loves me more than he loves someone who relaxes bullshit. 
There's nothing we could do to stop God from loving us. So what is the ingredient? And you'll hear some of it with my wife and me this afternoon. Almost a couple of years of abstinence. Not talking to certain people for years. In the meetings, not initiating conversation, not looking at my body naked. I mean, I could go down lists and lists, hitting my knees the moment I get up, doing the third step prayer, doing a two-way contract, being on the phone all the time. As Nicholas was sharing, Service work? I don't get paid for the days I miss work. And I miss work Friday, and I was afraid of the snow, so I told them I couldn't come Monday. And I only work Fridays and Mondays, so the days they have office space for me. I have to be willing to go to any length, including income. This program cannot be part of my life. It is my life. It's my breath. Without it, I can't survive. I'm a low-level bottom drunk. fact that I don't have AIDS is beyond, you know, only one of the reasons, apparently, is they didn't diagnose the term age till the second year I was sober. And maybe the pool wasn't big enough at that time in Nashville. And I got away without having HIV. Got away without being mugged, which I I got things stolen. And how can I not give away freely what was so freely given to me? This program has to come before my wife, my children, my profession, and my religion. That's if I don't put it first, I don't keep any of the other. <clears throat> Someone called me the badass the other day. You know? <laughs> and naturally, everything I hear, I hear as an insult. But in my spiritual awakening, I decided uh, last week when he said it, to, and my personal trainer wrote me something, like, who waits and stuff, wrote me something, and I saw it as an insult. But my spiritual awakening is hard you're insane. Don't trust what you are thinking that it's saying. So I read what from my personal trainer, my wife. She said, oh, what a lovely thing. She saw the comma in the sentence. I saw the comma as a dot, period, and separated it, and it seemed like an insult. Well, this guy calls me a badass. I had just complimented him. It was an AA meeting. I'm getting all pissed inside. With all this great recovery I have, I'm an inch away from an explosion, okay? <laughs> and the awakening. Hey, what, is, what does that mean? What did you mean when you said that? And it was complimentary. Naturally, I didn't believe it. This, I'm paranoid. I'm insane. I'm paranoid. So I went home and told my wife. She said, oh, what a nice compliment. 
I thought she was crazy. I looked it up in the dictionary. Finally, I found my meaning could be there, that it could be a little insult. But I started saying, well, maybe it's a compliment. But here I am screaming and yelling at you guys and gals. I'm a badass. This, I love you. I love this book. And I know it works. Okay. I'm getting signals. That- <laughs> Shut up. <laughs>